Hello and welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta, and we are in studio today, downtown in Salem, Oregon, home to Groundwork at Leadership Institute. Now, don't let us talking about leadership or the fact that this is part of a leadership institute deter you if you're not in a leadership role. Uh, We have seen clearly that what we discuss here and the guests that we have reaches far beyond leadership um, as a topic and for leaders that are in leadership roles. Uh, no matter what you do or, or where you're from or, or you know what role you have in life, whether you you know you're an employee of an organization, you're a business owner, whether you work in the nonprofit space, the government space, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a parent, a, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor, uh, the concepts and the principles we discuss here are applicable across the board. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback um, of people finding it valuable, um, uh, no matter kind of where they're at in life. So please don't uh, deter, let the, the fact that this is called the Rooted Leadership Podcast deter you from, from listening if this is your first time. And if it is your first time, welcome. Uh, certainly appreciate you joining. Hope you, hope you continue to listen to our stuff. And if you're a returning listener, uh, awesome. And we hope that you continue to find value and continue to, to listen and, and share it with, with others. So I want to get right into it. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time explaining our Leadership Institute. Again, you know, we got 30-something episodes before this that you can, you can uh, be learning from to hear what we're all about. Uh, but I want to get right into our guest today. So Salam Noor, our uh, co-host, is going to be joining us. But our guest, his name is Seth Elliott. Now, he used to live here in Salem, I believe. Um, and uh, he's an author. Um, his LinkedIn profile says Leader Ally. He works a lot with leaders. Uh, he's a leadership consultant and a business consultant, but he's also an author. And his book is called The Merlin Advantage. Uh, you can you know find it on Amazon. Uh, and uh, I have not been able to dive into it, but Seth and I have discussed it and it seems like a very interesting book. And so it's definitely on my list of books that I want to read. And I am excited to have him explain uh, his thinking behind the book, his inspiration, um, and the concepts and principles that he discusses and the analogies that he uses because, again, it's called the Merlin Advantage. Um, and Merlin being the character, if I'm understanding correct, is, is who he's, you know, uh, he's kind of centering his, uh, his leadership principles around um, characters such as Merlin. So I think, I think it's going to be a really enjoyable episode. Um, and Seth has a lot of great experience to bring to the table. So we're going to welcome him to the show here shortly, as well as Salam as I get him on Zoom. We're still not in person yet, but getting there close. Once again, thanks for joining, and I'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to the Rooted Leadership Podcast. Before our guest joins, you can catch more episodes, leadership tips, and community stories by following us on Facebook at Groundwork Leadership, on Twitter at Groundwork Salem, or on our website at groundworkleadership.org. All right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, well, welcome back to us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, welcome to our guest uh, today. And Salam has also joined us. So, uh, Seth, you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. It's a <laughs> joy to be on here with you guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining the show. And Salam, say hello. Hi, Chris. Got Hi, it. Seth. Hi, everybody. Yeah. And uh, it is good to be back and glad to uh, to join Seth in this conversation today, too. 
Good. I just like letting everyone know that you're you're both there because they were just listening to me a second ago. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, Seth, I mentioned that uh, I gave a brief intro to to you and and you know what I know about you based on our conversation that we had a couple weeks ago and what is found you know online and and uh, LinkedIn uh, about you. Uh, but why don't you maybe you know take the reins and and introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, who are you, uh, and what do you do? You know, those are two different things. Who are you? What do you do? And, and maybe why do you, why you do it? And we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. Yeah. Um, people might find, you know, like you mentioned LinkedIn and some of those other sources out there, if they're jumping around online, um, they might find on LinkedIn that I describe myself as a leader ally. And, you know, I've been working with that idea for a while now. And it really describes kind of where I am in the journey of having gone from, you know, learning so many things and being an individual contributor to leading myself, you know, in, um, in life, but also then transitioning to leading others. And then, you know, this is all the, this is all the quick take on it. And then being into leadership development very deeply in a corporate setting, um, and all the different, opportunities and challenges that that brings. And then moving from that into being an author and really right now being in a space where I'm not only sharing the book ideas and stuff, maybe we can touch on that as we get into this, but also that the real practical side of what being an ally to leaders means, which is coaching and consultation, um, just helping with process and, you know, collaborative problem solving with people and across a variety of issues, uh, culture, engagement, um, leadership development, all those kind of things that people might talk about in that conversation. But um, that's the short of it in in terms of uh, the leadership conversation and what I do. And, uh, you know, who am I? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I always I feel like I want to be brief on that. But I'm a dad. I'm a father of four. I live in central Oregon. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, I've been privileged, maybe somewhat intentionally, somewhat just blessed out of left field to tie, tie all this together. You know, um, my work life and my personal life, um, go very much together. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's being an ally in a lot of places, an ally to my spouse an ally to my kids. Ally, I was yesterday, I was an ally to my kids at school on some things. And, you know, I just like to, I like to live in that space. And so wherever it takes me, some of this is just uh, doing the dishes and some of it is diving into some real interesting organizational stuff with people and all kinds of things in between. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about wherever this kind of stuff takes us. So I um, appreciate that, uh, Seth, and you sharing a little bit more about yourself and your father and a, a husband. Um, you know, those are the, those are the most important things that how I define myself. So I appreciate you bringing that yeah. up, but um, you know, you use this term and I said this in the intro, you know, cause I love that you have that leadership, you know, leader ally. And if you could, you, you touched on a little bit, but if you could explain a little more on what you mean and why you chose the term ally. Um, and the reason why I'm just interested in hearing more about that, cause you know, a lot of my background is in conflict and working, you know, in peace building settings. And if peace building is needed, it's usually because conflict is, you know, kind of spiraled out of control and, and, you know, the way that conflict works from, you know, from a uh, peace building perspective and those that have, you know, have had, you know, uh, uh, academic or, you know, uh, professional training on conflict resolution and conflict transformation tactics, 
the term ally um, is ac- actually has more of a uh, negative connotation, right? Because when people are in conflict, they seek allies to be on their team, right? To to mm, go to right, war right. against the other side, and 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 what that means is if I'm you know if I'm in a conflict with Salam, you know, and I don't like him for whatever reason, and you and I work with you, I come to you and I'm like, Seth, dude, don't you hate when people do X, Y, and Z? Or gosh, Salam's <laughs> right. really really right. bothering me today. And what I want from you is I want you to reinforce and give me that justification that I need to continue my dislike towards Salam. And so in conflict, we call that an ally, right? But I, yeah, I, right? I, I believe, I, believe I, I know how, what you refer to as, as an ally. And so I, wanna, I just want to dig into that a little bit, little bit more, right? Because I, I assume you're not yeah. an ally to, to be on the leader's side of their justification of how their job's so hard, but you're an ally to be there to support and to lift and, and to help see different perspectives. So just take that if you can, run with that. No, it, it pays really well to just tell people what they want to hear. And that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but I, as you were talking, I was like, man, that's a great, that's a great angle to go down is I'll just, I'll just partner with leaders and, you know, totally dive into whatever their perspective is and feed them more of that. And we'll strengthen that position, you know, in opposition to others, you know, I, I think, you know, in a tongue in cheek way, you can almost see the appeal and how easy it is to fall into that kind of thinking with others. When we're in a conflict situation, we do Mm -hmm. seek allies to our position. Um, And I think what, you know, certainly that's, that's not my intent behind the words, as as you said. And, you know, what, what's really been true for me for a long time, and maybe where I landed on this is that I realized early on, as people talk to me from a mentor, you know, my mentors talk to me and later on, like coaches and other people would talk to me and and it was about goal setting and what do you want to do? And, you know, it was even very early. What do you want to do when you grow up? And, you know, I threw out things, you know, that sounded cool. And, you know, at the time were interests of mine and went across the board on all kinds of fun stuff. But, you know, I felt an inner sense of inauthenticity around the kind of things I would say, you know, I want to be a psychologist. I, and, you know, then there was a time I wanted to be a Navy SEAL and they're, you know, all over the place. And what I truly came to realize, maybe, maybe too late, but maybe as, you know, as, as a person, you know, can only get to it at a certain time in life, that I was less interested in my own ambition. And that's not to pat myself on the back. I was truly like feeling bad about like, um, I almost want to tell my coaches, I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm like, what do you want to talk about? What's everybody doing? Where's this team headed? And I started to realize um, I'm more of a catalyzer. Um, I'm really, I find my joy. I find my passion in, you know, things that are, you know, intended to be efforts to make the world a better place or to, you know, even if it's sports, win a championship or, you know, do something in the business world or do something politically, whatever it was, is to make those, you know, outcomes, maybe win-wins for other people to catalyze the processes and the teams that were, that, that were involved. Um, and the day-to-day experiences of people on those teams moving toward goals together. I was like, that's, that's kind of what I love. And then when those, you know, when the day ends, I'm like, okay, um, I, that was my ambition is to be in that space with other people acting like a, you know, a remora on a shark or a catalyzer in some way. And, you know, over the years that just became more and more professionally coherent for me until now I, when I say leader ally, 
it is to get into those problem solving spaces, to get into those coaching spaces and say to individuals or groups, where are you, where are you most excited about going? Um, what are you most fearful of coming your way? Mm -hmm. And let's, you know, forget my position in, in relation to them, but let's focus on my relationship with you and how can I be of a support, be of support as you meet these challenges, as you confront, you know, the dark side and the opportunities and all those kind of things. And, and then when it came to writing some of these things down, you know, we could, we'll, we can shift to this later, but that's where Merlin and Gandalf and even, yeah. you know, I bring up Mary Poppins and, you know, yeah. I started to pull on these characters that were, in my view, um, in one way of looking at the word ally, um, they were helpers and guides, you know, and I was like, you know, that's, that's a space I enjoy because, you know, I'm like Mary Poppins. I'm not, I'm not running a bank or a family. Um, I want to, I want to help the bank's family, you know, in that movie. So, yeah, that's, I, that's where I go with that word. Yeah, no, I. One more kind of thought um, to add to that with something that you said before we started recording. Love to hear hear your thoughts on it. And then, so, sorry, and then Salam, please, please, um, uh, you know, ask your question. But, uh, you know, before we began recording, you said, you know, something that gets you excited is the places of tension, right? And as somebody oh, yeah. that also works in conflict and leadership development, organizational development, we're constantly engaging in our community. There's, it's kind of a weird excitement, like, oh, things aren't going well. Ah, let's go. You know, it's kind of weird, <laughs> right? Uh, other people's yeah. um, pains become not necessarily, definitely not a joy, but it's, it's an excitement to help improve, right? Um, not because, again, we have all the answers, but there's just something about it, right? There's something kind of psychological about it that draws, you know, perhaps people like us towards those um, environments. And somebody has to, right? Somebody's got to be right. drawn to, to want to help. But, you mentioned that term, places of tension, and then thinking of this idea of a leader ally, and I shared kind of my perspective on how I see ally in conflict scenarios. I want to kind of merge the two because what, what, how do you handle it when you are drawn to places of tension? Leaders see you as an ally in places of tension. They probably have an innate desire to want to just vent to you and share all their justification and all their reasons of why you know, things are hard and, and perhaps some of that justification is translated to maybe the objectification of others or the complaining or the blaming of others, whatever you want to call it. How do you handle those moments where you're you're there, you want to be helpful, but you you don't want to feed their their justification. You don't want to feed the conflict, um, but you wanna you wanna help them. So how do you respond? And this is important, right? Because all of us, no matter what relationships we find ourselves in, whether we're a leader, a parent, a friend, a colleague, we're going to have people that come to us and what they want most from us is just to say, Seth, it's okay that you absolutely hate that driver that cuts you off today on the road. Or <laughs> it's okay that right. you absolutely are frustrated with the person that you work with because they did X, Y, and Z. That's what we want people to give us the most. Um, but I think that the most valuable people in our lives are the ones that don't give us that. They're the ones that mm. challenge our perspective and the ones that say, well, have you thought about what they might be thinking or what they might be feeling? It hurts to hear that at first, but we end up liking it or we end up needing right. it. Sorry, we end up finding it right. valuable. Um, I don't know if we necessarily like it. So that's a big explanation for you to get to kind of how you handle those environment, those situations, because I'm sure you face them a lot as a, as a leader ally and a consultant and a coach where they're probably seeking justification from you. I mean, what do you do in those environments to to kind of flip, flip the, the perspective, flip the coin. 
Yeah, great question. And I, and I like how, how you're working, you know, how you're approaching this of bridging those conflict and tension spaces and the leadership experience. You know, there, there's a lot in there. I think, I think for me, I, you know, I'll out myself a little bit to anybody who might be listening to this in my process. You know, people can just know <laughs> my trick here. Yeah. Um, Everyone pay attention. Here it optimist. is. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. You can do it yourself, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm an optimist and maybe a sucker sometimes. Um, but I think I, I come into these situations with a, the, there's a, D, I mean, it's down deep sometimes. Some of the situations that I've worked with folks in are real yucky emotionally, uh, pretty toxic, a lot of yeah. crazy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I, there's this thing in me that's like a faraway music note sounding and it's hope. And I'm not just saying that to be cliche. Like, again, sometimes it's a gullibility maybe on my part, but there's a hope that, you know, maybe like a, you know, like a doctor who wants a challenging case or something, you know, there, there's a sense of personal interest, but there's also knowing that there's things that you can do for folks. There's places people can go that, that they may not know about. And, you know, what's coming to my mind right now is maybe problem solving with young children. There's a real joy as, as hopefully a healthy, mature adult to come in and bring peace to that situation and say, you know, and this salon, this is now going back to some of my behavior team days, you know, the, the, uh, from those earlier days we talked about pre before we jumped on here of working with situations where people are very upset or very afraid or very angry and to say, Hey, everybody, how's everybody doing? Let's just, put, you know, just the presence, mm-hmm. you know, that, that observer effect or that outside effect of a presence that's calm and optimistic that even some of the nonverbals start to shift the game a little bit and to come into those spaces and places with a belief in some things that, you know, I, I think are fortunate that I've seen happen where there are breakthroughs, mm-hmm. where there are intractable positions that are all of a sudden not so intractable. And people would have never thought that they could even look at another person again. You know, people will, you know, the, co- the classic phrases of, I don't think I can unhear that. Yeah. I don't think I can unhear what was said. I don't think I can unsee that. I don't think I can go back in that space again. And for people to find that maybe you can, you know, and I think part of what I do is hold that place of optimism, hold that place of processing and to help, you know, sometimes it's individual work. Sometimes it's group stuff where we just take baby steps toward um, walking away from the brink or walking away from, you know, sometimes even physical conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's been part of the story along the way too. It's not just organizational, conceptual, political tensions, but sometimes just yeah. out and out, somebody's going to punch somebody in the face mm-hmm. and to bring something into the space that is optimistic, that is, and also optimistic and curious, yeah. almost a, a begin, you know, I, I don't know who, I, I don't know if it's Buddhist tradition or whatever, but the beginner's mind, you know, that, that is, you know, Fortunately for me, I don't, I told this to somebody else the other day, I literally don't know lots of things. And so I have a natural curiosity that's like, uh, I really don't know what the heck is going on. And I want to start with some super simple questions that sometimes a situation has accelerated or deteriorated so fast and so far that people haven't realized they've forgotten. And I do this too, but you forget the power of a simple question. 
Yeah. You know, or those simple curiosities that are like, well, why couldn't we just, you know, whatever. I mean, fill in the blank, you know, merge or separate or move over here or stand over there. And people are like, well, actually, I don't know, you know, and there's some real discovery there. It's kind of fun. I I love that space of discovery. So I don't know. I might have got far afield there. but No, that was great. I mean, you couldn't have answered that. I, more perfectly, I, I think, you know, everything that you had just said, um, it speaks to me, right? Because I, I have a similar perspective, you know, because when you're in those scenarios and you mentioned where people can't even look at each other, right? And the, they, they just can't even see each other. They're, they, they're, in a, they're in a spot in life that we've all been in, right? Where we've, yeah. we have such strong emotion that's taking over and we felt some sort of hurt or pain. So it, we're well justified in our reasoning for not wanting to look at another, right? I'm just using that as an example. But somebody yeah. has to, as a third side, and I love William Urey's book, The Third Side, somebody has to take mm. the third side in those environments to provide that sense of hope. Um, and, and even, you know, as mushy as it sounds, but to, to be a, 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 a sense of love in the room, right? That it's still possible. Um, and I, I, yeah. I think that yeah. that's one of the hardest things to do, which is why a lot of conflict and challenges and problems that we face, not just as leaders, but as people become very transactional. We just check the box and we move on. We just, you know, do the thing. We sign the agreement. We shake the hand. We do whatever. We comply and we move on. And it's because we don't want to face that love, right? A good friend of, of mine calls it the dangerous love. We don't want to love dangerously because it's scary and we have to be vulnerable. We have to be authentic, which is what you said. And it just makes it harder. Um, and so we, we get, we end up, we end up with transactional uh, relationships and outcomes. Um, uh, so I think it's, yeah. I loved how you responded to that question. I appreciate that, that you answered it that way, but I, I want to rewind and honor Salam here. <laughs> Salam, you, I know you want to, you, you have Chris, some thoughts and, and questions. Sorry. Well, thank yeah. you. So a couple of things, and I, I want to get to your book at some point, love to have sure, you sure. talk about oh, yeah. your book and the analogies that you have in that book, but you touched on two things in, in your response to Chris's question. Um, I, I want to bring in some of the concepts that we have in our groundwork framework, yeah, our rooted yeah, leadership absolutely. framework. And when you when you mentioned that, you know, two people may be so deep in conflict that they don't even want to look at each other. They can't even look at each other. And maybe it reaches the violence kind of stage, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, and Chris referenced the dangerous love notion, you know. Uh, it, we call that deeply seeing when you recognize the humanity of the other person. Right, right. So uh, I just wanted to point that out, that these concepts are really well framed in this framework that we use with individuals, organizations. And that applies to families and neighbors and communities in terms of seeing each other. And once you see the humanity in the other person, then all of a sudden, I think you're reminded of your own humanity and a, a switch, you know, yeah. turns on and you start to think differently about things, especially the conflict uh, scenarios you two were discussing. I want to, and I'd love to have you, you know, elaborate on that, but I want to go back to this notion of the leader ally and have you talk about the leaders without mentioning names uh, or specifics, but we have this concept, you know, conceptually, we have this notion that, well, a leader, especially in a position of authority, has figured everything out. Mm. They know everything, you know? So I'd love to hear your experiences and your reflection on being a leader ally. And what do those leaders need 
And, and you talked about help being a coach, being a consultant, perhaps even a mentor, I would say in some cases, but why do these leaders need an ally? Why do they need Seth Elliott to help them <laughs> figure out um, an area of work that, so, that they're so well experienced in, let's say, or have had years of experience in? Right. Um, and what I'm, what I'm, and I, I just would love to hear your thoughts because sometimes that's opposite of what we think. It's like, yeah. okay, you're the CEO of Microsoft or you're the CEO of a nonprofit or any kind of organization. And we think you've got it figured it out. You've got it figured out. Yeah. You don't need anybody's yeah. help. And so. such a trap. Yeah. That you describe. I mean, this is, this is what leaders at so many levels and so many size organizations face. Um, and I, you know, now it's just jumping into my mind that leader, if you're leading a relationship or re- leading a family, I mean, it could be at a very small level where you think, you, you know, your parent or something, and you think you're supposed to know. And there's social messages that you think you're, that say you're supposed to know. And, you know, one of my, one of my places of inquiry is leadership development. A lot of leadership development by the nature of existing suggests that there is a place where we can know as leaders a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, business acumen and political savvy. And, you know, you guys are probably familiar. Some of these amazing lists that come from the, you know, some really cool places, some really cool leadership development houses, if you will, um, that have lists of competencies that are, you know, hundred and some long. And each one of them is a, you know, could be a lifetime study. And so we see a person that's at a CEO level or a, a, a top level. And, you know, there's sort of this vicious cycle. I don't know if it's a cycle or what, how, what shape I would draw if I had to, but you get into this situation where it's, you know, people say it's lonely at the top and yet, you know, and there's all kinds of factors that happen. You guys know there's, there's a vacuum of information. People start, you know, maybe sometimes the higher you get and the more power you acquire, people tell you less things. Um, and they tell you less honestly, uh, you know, the, the, the information is managed for, for sometimes great intentions, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and so Chris, did you have a thought in there? No, I'm just like, I'm just uh, uh, ming you. I'm just like okay, agreeing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, keep I going. Sorry. I didn't want to go too fast on it. But no, I'm no, I love it. About you know what is a hard space to be in, and the space that is really tricky. So long to your point of for for a coach or an ally or a mentor. I mean, I mean, just think think of the Mary Poppins movies. You know um, that it, you know if we go back to the childhood story or what we saw in Disney's version of it, um, Mr. Banks was not looking for a magical ally to come in and um, upend things, pose new ideas and play more and whatever, you know, whatever you want to see is her role there. Um, In fact, he was looking for quite the opposite. And so leaders have these incredible pressures that one, I don't want to show vulnerability, but two, especially nowadays, coaching is popular and people want to build coaching cultures and you know, you know, feedback culture, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to do feedback, right? And, you know, all these things. And so there's a pressure on one side to become open and collaborative and, you know, embrace mentorship and coaching. And then on the other side, so a lot more to, I think, some of what you were alluding to is these pressures um, that happen for people to, to know it all. And even, even if you'll read right off the, you know, the news of the day that leaders aren't supposed to do that and leaders say it takes a team effort. And we have these competing interests, these, these competing value systems on leaders. And 
you know, so like, how do you get in that space as a coach or a consultant? Um, very, uh, very carefully and very organically is what seems to be my experience. You don't just go out and hang your hat out there that says, I'm a magical ally from a faraway windy place and I drift into your world and make everything better. Mm -hmm. Shall we get started? Um, <laughs> there are huge barriers to letting people in, you know, I mean, if, if for anybody, letting people to your inner world, especially when, you know, let, let's talk the turkey of, of such dangerous things like money and power and control and relationships and, you know, reputation and branding. And, you know, you can pile up a, a very um, precarious pathway into a heartfelt, open, authentic uh, place of allyship with a leader. Um, and so again, it's, it's not a, a shingle you hang out and get lots of business. Um, yeah. It's, it's one connection from another. Sometimes it comes from doing a training and somebody says, that sounds like we should have lunch. And, you know, it puts a, it puts a, you know, it's, it's doctor counselor. I mean, it's super confidential. Like you said, we're not saying names and we're going to be, you know, I, I'm always very careful of what I even allude to because it is such a precious and intimate space. Um, it's a type of, it, it's got an intimacy to it yeah. in being yeah. that ally. So, yeah. yeah. How, how do Chris, if I can just do a quick follow-up, yeah. how do you approach a situation where the leader invites you in to be a coach, a thought partner, a consultant, a mentor, et cetera, and a situation where, let's say, the organization invites you in to work with a leader. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you want Chris to jump in on that or was that for me? For you. Well, I was just asking <laughs> you, how do you approach that? I mean, how, how, what's, what goes in your mind? <laughs> when you when you're confronted with these two realities, you know, the person that says, let's have lunch. Yes. yes. And you develop this relationship yeah. and the person that their boss says, let's have lunch. All right. And your job is to develop a relationship yeah. with that with that yeah. person that you're becoming a leader ally to. Yeah. Um, it, it happens all sorts of ways. Yeah. There, there's the pleasant, easy, open way. And then there's those situations that are, you know, um, they can, they can feel like it's, somebody can feel like it's remedial to them or, you know, that somebody's in trouble or that somebody has a wonderful idea to have some ongoing conversations with this outside, you know, that is, those are euphemisms that are usually pretty toxic and pretty seen, seen through immediately, you know, by everybody pretty much, you know, that, that coaching has been invited in by someone, um, and it could be those prescriptive moments where HR or a leader or, you know, some, some version of, Hey, we're assigning you some time with a person, uh, with Seth. Um, I haven't outside of organizations, I haven't experienced that much. So, you know, I only inside organizations, you know, I've had those sensitivities and stuff, but I, I know it's a place where I follow this, this, this advice that, you know, it comes from parents. It comes from, my religious tradition, it comes from my wife, which is tell the truth. And, you know, I think this, this connects to something I think Chris was churning up in me earlier, um, is the idea of strong emotions and they can be defensiveness. They can be hatred. They can be love, you know, as you alluded to the dangerous love and the, you know, sexuality, whatever these, these, these real things that happen inside organizations and inside lives and families and systems and teams. And if you, 
you know, for anybody to be delusional enough to think that, oh, I leave that stuff at home or I check that at the door. You don't check your sexuality at the door. You don't check your political thinking at the door. Um, you can manage it, but it's still present in you as a whole person. And where does it go? You know, and, and what does it drive in behavior and thinking? And so I think one of the things that I try to adhere to, you know, and I, I blow it often, but I try to adhere to telling the truths and holding the space for strong emotions and not being, not trying to move too quickly through uncomfortable spaces. And sometimes that means that the work can't get done, but I'd rather have a situation where I was not able to help, um, or we had to go slow or we had to loop back in six months or whatever, you know, some funky timeframes on things that you think, Hey, let's just talk this afternoon. We'll get it all done. I kind of, in my mind, I, as a, you know, self-styled expert, I think I see what you need here. Mm -hmm. That rarely works. That's not usually how it goes. So these things have Right. interesting processes and interesting timelines. And, you know, it's, it's just something where there's, I've seen real value in just saying, I'm, there's a possibility you might not want to be here. And somebody says, yeah, F right. You know, I mean, they'll get right to it. Mm -hmm. I do not want to be here and I don't want to talk to you. And I know who sent you and I know what's going on and I have no interest in it. And to, to live in that space and not be prescriptive or use, you know, professional jargon to try to get around it. And, you know, it's more maybe the counseling skill set to just sit with that a little bit and, and, and allow them to have to validate that and say, uh, yeah, I could totally. And, and again, to you, to match that frequency of reality, that's like, yeah, I feel that I'm not, I don't, I could totally understand if you don't want to go forward at this time. If you don't even want to look at this, I mean, that's very legit, you know, and sometimes they'll use very, very casual language to just say, yeah, this sucks. Not sure what we do. And I sometimes will spin to the wish list thing of like, what if, what if the rules were off? What would you like this to be? And there's something, I don't know if it's in the nonverbals or the, or the timing of things, but I, again, I still am always a believer in, you know, if you're just kind and loving and also slow with, with things that sometimes you'll get a little something that maybe wasn't gotten to before. Yeah. You know, and I'm always interested in those extra five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, and, and again, we all of a sudden my mind wants to blow this out to police use of force to crisis intervention back in the district days. I'm always curious what one more minute will do, what five more minutes will do. And, you know, there's a point in my brain where I'm like, oh, okay, this this one's pretty DOA. Uh, this is going to be a pretty intractable situation, but uh, just the value of time and that compassionate way of moving through time with somebody can can get some things to happen yeah that's great thank you great insight, great insight. good questions yeah this is fun this is good yeah i lo love the questions and, and the answers um uh i want to point out one thing and then love to to move into uh you know your book and we can even use this idea behind um you know uh telling the the truth and then maybe you know i'm sure you have many ways to segue that into into your book but uh, as you're talking about truth, yeah, I think, you know, truth and transparency are very closely related. And we have this section in our, in our framework, in our deeply seeing section of our soil, um, where we have these, you know, quote unquote steps, uh, you know, they're just help, help us frame things. But one of those steps in deeply seeing is to be emotionally transparent. 
Um, mm. And I think that, you know, telling the truth is, is a part of that, you know, and what we mean by being emotionally transparent is be honest with who we are and what holds us back. You know, don't try to run from what holds us back um, emotionally and, and, and uh, you know, face it. Um, there's a lot of truth uh, seeking there and truth telling in that process. Um, I just wanted to, to make that connection. But um, maybe as you segue in, would love to hear your, about your book, you know, give us a, a overview synopsis, but then let's start to dive into some of the, the you know, the content in it. But something you said a while ago, and maybe this can segue you a little bit ago in the conversation that I found really important. Um, you said leaders don't always get all of the truth, right? Because mm. it, it gets filtered through to them, right? You know, like, it, and it's not like it's unintentional that they don't get all of the truth, but it gets filtered to them through all the different, especially larger organizations, you know, gets filtered up to them and what they hear isn't actually what always happens. Right. And that could be, if you really think about it, that could be detrimental to an organization. If the leader is not getting the truth, then how on earth are they going to make, you know, leadership specific decisions to help move a, any organization in the right direction if they're not getting the truth? Um, so how do we solve for that, right? That's kind of a question mm -hmm. that, you know, we can linger on the boiler as you get into you know, the Merlin advantage and, and tell us a little bit more about your book. Yeah, no, good points. And I like a distinction or even a, you know, a potential reframe or, or just sophistication around this idea of telling the truth, because I think there's the Simon Cowell American Idol way to tell a truth, <laughs> Yep. you know, which is, I, I don't think you can sing, you know, and for Simon Cowell, I don't think you should ever come back or even try it again. You know, like it can be very harsh. And I, I think I would want to, put a placeholder in around being careful of what's telling our truth versus telling our opinion of something. You know, I think there's some, some caution needed around this idea of telling the truth. And I think the way you described it as emotional transparency is a little more the intent behind, you know, my, my effort to tell the truth to people is, you know, I was thinking in terms of process, you know, I want to tell you the truth about the process. I want to tell you the truth about why I'm here. I want to tell you the truth about how easy it is to make me go away um, or how hard it is. <laughs> like there may be times when like uh, there are situations where I cannot go away. You know, I'm kind of, you're kind of stuck with me for right now uh, in crisis intervention or something like that um, or, or mandated coaching. Like uh, you and I kind of have to do a journey. And if it's just like on the office, when Michael and Toby just sit glaring at each other for a while, sometimes <laughs> good episode. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's that. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, you know, so that I, you know, good, I, I, that was good. You called that out. Um, I think also then pivoting to this idea of the way the truth gets interrupted and blocked, you know, as it moves up and down and throughout an organization there, I mean, we could study, people have studied this, like what happens to information? Information is hoarded. Information is manipulated. Um, and again, sometimes with the best of intentions, you know, sometimes we say, oh, toxic culture, there must be some nasty one person behind that being toxic, you know, and, um, that's not, it's rarely that simple, you know, thing, you know, cultural phenomenon inside organizations lead to other cultural phenomenon inside organizations and individual pathologies inform little other pathologies. And then it's a group thing, you know, like it's very complex to, to untangle, um, or how do we solve for that? Um, you know, I, I'll take the easy cop out of very carefully, 
but I think, um, you know, even things like, uh, you know, when, when we get this idea sort of of leadership, you know, cheap leadership 101, which is, you know, a manager who might say, don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution, or don't bring me, you know, problems without a solution or something like that, which is actually well-intended, you know, like, Hey, a good motivating leader, let's talk solutions. You know, that has a lot of positivity built into it. And usually a lot of good intent, like, Hey, let's just move to the part where we get on with it. And yet sometimes that can be one of those things that um, is a vehicle that transports truth right on past its off-ramp or its stop, you know, and leaders miss something, you know, that, that sometimes as much as they want to move into problem solving mode or whatever, leaders have this level of experience and maturity. Um, having done it for a while sometimes where they're like, that would have been really helpful to know, <laughs> but somebody coming to them will be like, well, I wanted to move quickly to solutions, you know? And so again, best of intentions, best of approaches, and somehow a little nugget gets left out mm-hmm. um, that could have made a big difference in diagnosis or just insight into a situation. And it's, it's, a, it's a wisdom balance. I mean, there's no formula where you can say you put X number of truths, you know, widgets in one box and you, t- you know, put X number of problem solves in the other box. And then we have this wonderful, you know, balanced system of truth and solutions. You know, it's a constant kind of judgment call on how much do we talk about. And I think that's what makes it hard. That's why when we solve for these kind of truth barriers, that's a tricky one. But I think, you know, I think one of the things that's powerful is to admit, or to understand or embrace right off the bat that it's not always nefarious intent behind what's happened. And that can be a powerful place. And I've always, I, you know, not always, but uh, there have been times where I've found deep nefarious intent. But, you know, we find that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if we start positive, if we start um, in this more open approach where we tolerate a little bit of discussion and a little bit of strong emotion and that we're open to the truth, um, we don't have to be afraid of that. We can protect the right people and we can coach others. And, you know, I, it's not as bad as people think at first. And again, I'm back to that optimism place of people will guard what might be some bad motives or some yeah. real deep pathology. And I'm like, we'll get to it. And incrementally, as we take small adaptive steps toward it, it will be less of a problem than you think it is. We will eat this elephant little bits at a time. It won't be the same elephant by the time we get to it. If we take a, you know, a patient compassionate approach to it. So mm-hmm. eh, uh, I'm an optimist. There's a, I mean, a lot to, to build off, um, from that. Um, but I want to, you know, we got about, about 15 little, maybe a little less minutes left and I want love to get into, you know, to your book. Um, just you know, mostly it might be selfish, but it, I find the uh, concept behind it very interesting, intriguing. I want to hear more about it. Um, you know, uh, synopsis and and some of the highlights from it. What you've you know learned from from writing it and and you know things of that nature. So, um, can you uh, can you jump in into that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. That's that's very kind of you to give me a chance to talk about that. Um, and. I I like to talk about it. I found though that there's a hard part to it, which is, you know, I think Salam was intuitively getting at it is it's hard to create these allyships. It's hard to 
put together King Arthur and Merlin. You know, there's stories and all kinds of problems with that. If you look into the to the fiction behind it, it's not a it's not a pretty story all the time, um, especially if you go to the older versions. <laughs> you know, it's it's super weird at times, you know, and I don't think Tolkien did much better, um, you know, sanitizing the the you know, the Gandalf Aragorn thing, you know, there, there's things that are really tricky in the stories and it becomes very tricky. You know, as, as you read the book, it's fun to get into those stories, but it's very tricky to bring those into reality. Mm-hmm. You know, people, there's a real question mark around like, okay, so how do we do this Aragorn Gandalf thing for real? And the answer is, again, it's, it's, it's more small and adaptive than a big sweeping like, well, we're going to get a guy with a wizard hat and then we're going to get a sword for the other person <laughs> and it's, it'll be cool. It's, you know, in some ways, I wish it could be that easy, but it's not. But I think at the heart of what I explore in the book is the real powerful possibilities behind seeing two different energies at work inside systems. And I, you know, I spend some time exploring competitive energy versus cooperative energy and maybe just in contrast, it's not versus you've got me sensitive now to my use of the word allies and all these (laughs) these positions. Uh, No, it's good. It's good. Um, I had the best of intentions with that word. Um, But as we talk about uh, these energies that are both present, um, one of the analogies I use often is you know, uh, parts of a vehicle, you know, the gears and a machine and, and then also the oil that's put into that machine. And I'm not a mechanic, so that's about as far as I can go in breaking down the two systems, but I know there's gears. I know there's parts. I know there's very physical parts to an organization and, and those, you know, kind of align with the competitive energy piece, the things that make it go, the metrics, the, the data side that people are often you know, rightly excited about, Hey, I want to see some charts. I want to see some numbers. I want to see the metrics of, is this working? And we want to talk ROI and all those, all those things that are hard measures of the Mm -hmm. tangible things that are going on and the tangible benefit that's hopefully being produced by the system, you know, and it could be, you know, in education, it could be students who graduate in business. It could be widgets produced per hour, you know, whatever, um, are those measures of our competitive efforts. But I think, and and I and I start to tread into this controversial territory that because of personality, because of social, um, um, pre- uh, not preference, but just value systems, that competitive energy tends to be easier to see, or the competitive um, out output tends to be easier to see, um, and it tends to be more present in more of the personalities that are promoted into leadership. You know, and however you want to slice it, you know, I often use the MBTI, um, you know, tool, but you can use any of the tools you can, you can look at type A, simple type A kind of language, but the folks that tend to, and talk, and we're talking over decades and centuries, Yeah, the, the folks that tend to occupy the leadership space tend to possess within them, and this is my position in the book, tend to possess within them those preferences and innate drives that are more um, adept at navigating the competitive landscapes, at harnessing and using and deploying competitive energy, even in the way they speak, even in the way that they use their body language, the way that they prefer communications to be bullet pointed or um, numbered or succinct 
Um, even some neuroscience I cite in there that, that many of the types that are most often promoted into leadership actually don't, they, they don't prefer brainstorming. They don't want to sit through everybody talking about their own perspective. You know, like that's a challenge for some of those folks. And then there's this flip side that is the cooperative energy. That's the oil in the gears that is, you know, and which is, it's hard because it's slower. You know, if you get into some of these um, corporate or business environments, or even sometimes military law enforcement environments, slow is problematic. Even though intellectually, everybody's like, yeah, sounds good. And we're doing mindfulness stuff. And we have a yoga studio in the bottom of the police station, literally some of them. And we're into this and we're into health and we're into self-care and we love our people. There's some of these sticky things that it's like slowness and contemplation and reflection are antithetical to some of the speeds of the gears. And it's like the gears want to move fast. And if we're talking about cars, we can't win the race if the gears move slow. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is how do we, you know, in, introduce this oil into the machine that, that literally counterintuitively makes it go faster. And so I often talk about the, there's those paper finger traps. I don't know if you ever saw those. They're like woven together. You know, I'm making the gesture for the people who are listening. I'm making the gesture, you know, if you put your two pointer fingers together, there's these paper finger traps that will hold your fingers together. Yeah. And if you pull them fast or you don't do it right, you're locked. And there's, there's a certain way of doing it that's slower and more intentional, but that's how, I guess, how you get your fingers out. I haven't played with one for a while, but that's, that's kind of the feeling behind this, that it counterintuitively, oftentimes for business leaders, um, you know, who, who've been, you know, again, pressured with delivering results externally, they have so many pressures, but then they also experience that innate pressure of their own personalities and, and even what we're finding their own neurologies, their own literal wiring to drive toward outcome over process and to, to lean that way and to be impatient at times and say, you, are you telling me to stop for oil that I need to, you know, have that in my system that I need this, you know, this ally around who's more gifted in that space of reflection and contemplation and interpersonal nuance. And um, that's what we talk about in the book is, yeah. And that's what it takes. It can't be, and this is the challenge. It can't be a training we do once a quarter. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really introduce with some of these characters. It has to be this day-to-day -day reality where the ally is not in the way of progress but it's part of the progress. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a tricky thing. And I would have believed it, except I lived it. Mm -hmm. Prior to writing the book, I was in a, you know, in a campus public safety leadership role. And I was, I, I was supervising a person who was this other type that I describe as the performance leader. He was the Aragorn. He was the King Arthur in every way. And a wonderful guy, cared about his people, fun, gregarious, all this stuff. It wasn't like, well, he's a real stickler and he's the performance guy. Not at all. Um, extremely good with people, but his inner drivers were around the metrics and the speed and the performance outcomes. And, you know, when it came to coaching and kind of process evaluation and some of those kind of things, I just took a much different approach and we found our way to a teamwork that started to kind of make me think, what are we doing here? This is interesting. Yeah. And we started to split our roles a little bit differently. 
that probably fell around a little bit more the fictional stuff I'm describing of, you know, me as sort of the, you know, the human touch side of the organization. I was doing the coaching. I was, I was leading some of the crucial conversations, the hard conversations. I was leading the terminations um, and some of those kind of things just because of my interpersonal approach and some of my own preferences. I was on the other side, neurologically or psychologically yeah. or personality wise. And it wasn't, you know, I've, I've been talking lately about, you know, what's beyond development, that we need to continue to embrace leadership development, but we also need to explore a little bit more how leaders work together. And that could be a C-suite team, you know, different ways of looking at who's on that team. Um, it could be looking at different ways that we, you know, recruit and build around new concepts like chief people officer. You know, or the people, you know, that are on that HR function side, um, oftentimes many of those folks are performance leaders and they are not making the same human connections that maybe, you know, if we recruited slightly differently, um, if we saw through a slightly different lens that's based on some of that personality in neuroscience, that we might be able to better build our collaborative efforts. Yeah. Chris, I want to touch, I, I know we're running out of time here. But I want to bring in this concept that we have in our rooted framework around seeds and this notion of desire and want. And, and the seeds section, um, Seth, deals with innovation. And at the mm. core of innovation is, is people or humanity is yeah. what we call our soil. So you have to tell the soil and cultivate the soil, which is people, yeah. in order to innovate in the most effective way. And you talked about something that I was curious to know how it would apply into the environment that you were just describing. Okay. So we talk about desire and want. Yeah. And desire is when we when we want something, but we want it for the right reasons. We we it's we desire change in this organization or we desire results uh, and improvements. I'm sorry, what, Chris? Results and impact, as we say it in the curriculum. It's results and impact. So we yeah. do want to have the results. But we want to be mindful of the way we affect people. How do we impact people in the process? So you talked about these, the, you, when you describe the cooperative and competitive environments, uh, it's really interesting because the competitive environment is focused on results. And being cooperative or collaborative is optional, per se. Right, Whereas right. the, the yeah. cooperative one uh, tries to take the competition out, out of things but you're really focused on getting the same results. You're just going about it a different way, like the relationship that you described with this individual that you were surprising. So we, we talk about that in the, in, in the form of desire and want. And desire has a much broader, much more authentic and meaningful effect because you get to the result but you're also measuring how you're impacting people in the process. Yeah. The want is me checking the box to say, okay, we passed this milestone and it becomes more of a statistical achievement and we still get recognized for it. Then you're absolutely right. People get promoted for it and they put in leadership positions and they get all kinds of accolades, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that's done at a cost and that's the impact piece. And Chris can elaborate on that, but I'm just kind of curious to, to see if you see any correlations or any parallels yeah to this notion of desire and want compared to this competitive yeah. cooperative sort of tension, if you will. Yeah. And I, and when, when you're, when you didn't respond to that, I want to build a little bit more off of 
everything you touched on um because it made me think of our previous conversation we had a couple of weeks ago and want to build upon what salam said as well but go ahead and respond yeah. to that first okay but I, I have another uh thing i want to throw throw at you to see how you handle it <laughs> yeah okay awesome awesome um yeah and i wish we weren't running out of time but i want to be conscious of that so um i you know salam what what you were saying made me think of this concept I introduced in the book that has really resonated with people. You know, you never know as an author, you're like, I don't know. I thought this was really cool. And everybody else liked, I thought a was cool. Everybody else liked B. Um, and one of the things that really kind of worked for people at a visceral level or a felt level was this idea of organizational cholesterol. And yeah. And it was sort of in that space that you're talking about as that on our way to outcome, if we are not conscious and careful with our process, we gum up the, you know, I mean, literally the parts of the car, the, the veins in our system um, and the, the, the bonds, whatever they are, you know, those lines on the flow chart, whatever, wherever we can trace these human bonds, those can be damaged. And that's where we, you know, that's, that's where I look at. when I say, you know, Machiavellianism or toxic culture or, passive aggression or workplace violence or whatever, that's all on the side of that's where organization, that's what organizational cholesterol looks like. And it's when we are more attentive or in an unsophisticated way, attentive to those tangible outcomes in a way that's not properly, not, not conscious enough of the process. And so in the situations you know, where this phenomenon is at work, um, you know, with the two sides, even being represented somewhat or led by two different people. I mean, going in the same direction, certainly. But as I advocated for more the process side, you know, uh, that the impact, not just at the end, but along the way was positive. And it was simple stuff like checking in with people that my counterpart, and I've, then I've, I've met some others who resonate and are like, dude, I, I really, value that, but I'm not good at it. Um, I tend to rush. I never ask the right questions and I don't have the background. I wasn't a coach. I wasn't in the behavioral sciences world. I don't, you know, so training and temperament, you know, they've been like, yeah, I, I just see our, 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 our goals so clearly. And I want the team to be motivated as much as I am. And I kind of want to kick them in the rear and I want to, I want to hold that prize out there. And, you know, so there's, there can be very positive energy around it. But a lot of times what we did is we talked behind closed doors as, you know, Merlin and King Arthur. And I was like, let me translate that for the folks. <laughs> let me translate that for the team. And we would take a little extra time. And I describe it like those child experiments where you, you know, rub the magnet over the nail, you know, so that all the electrons are going in the right way. It's this slow kind of soothing gesture that I'm, 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 I'm stroking this nail. And all the electrons are going to go the right way. And then when we introduce the charge of these charismatic driving leadership forces, we'll go in the right way, that we'll actually have an attractive magnet. And the only caution is, hey, hey, performance leader is what I call them, the experts on the competitive energy side. I say, you're going to have to give us a few more minutes. I'm going to have to meet with the team this week. We're going to have to take a moment. But I assure you, I can do it faster than anybody. And it's not just Seth. It's anybody who really, you know, has done the self-work and realizes that they work in that empath space, that they, that's really who they are by training and temperament. And they can get in a room with a person and quickly orient people toward a common goal 
where true fears have been talked about, true concerns have been talked about, real questions have been answered, you know, and a lot of times for what I describe as the performance leaders, it's dissonant. Questions almost can elicit feelings of disloyalty or insecurity. And, you know, for, for kind of blissful empaths like me, I'm like, I don't aspire to shooting the, you know, hitting the bullseye myself. I'm just here to help you shoot the arrow better. Um, and so it just hits me different, you know, when I'm operating in that space, questions, um, detractors, uh, even, you know, the potential whistleblower. I'm like, blow the whistle. I want to hear it. What's crazy? What's freaking you out? Um, and, you know, it's not always that rosy. But we open the space up for that and we get alignment and clarity mm-hmm. that's, I think, authentic yeah. rather than forced. Like you guys are saying, come on, everybody, check the box. Let's move on to box number two. You know, the, the integral process leader, which I introduced in my book is, oh, no, we're not going to check that box till it's really ready to check. Yeah. And, you know, performance leaders are sometimes pulling their hair out. And I'm like, yeah, I need one more day on this, but you'll thank me later because all your electrons will be lined up and then you can push the gas pedal down and yeah. off we go. So yeah. yeah, anyway. I love it. Chris, I think we should call this episode Merlin and King Arthur. <laughs> yeah, Merlin yeah. and King Arthur. <laughs> well, you know, we're gonna have I just to, love that. Well, Seth, it's we're, fun. we're gonna have to do a, a part two eventually because what I want to get into, and we can end with with you know some thoughts on this. I think we could spend another <clears throat> entire episode talking about it, but as you got into the Merlin Advantage and started to explain, you know, King Arthur uh, uh, and Merlin, Gandalf, Aragorn, I remembered our first conversation where we were talking about this, and I shared, you know, I shared with you um, how fascinated I was with that perspective because, um, you know, and as I told you a little bit more about myself, I sometimes find myself at, uh, you know, facing some 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 dissonance, uh, you know, as mentally because I. Uh, I was I grew up an athlete, very competitive. I always wanted mm-hmm. to be the best. I always had a chip on my shoulder to prove myself. We're running a race, I'm going to finish first. Nobody's going to beat me, right? I took pride right. as a goalkeeper on my team to be the fastest, strongest, you know, most endurance whatever on my team. I mean, I was always number 1, right? That's yeah. why I wore the yeah. jersey number 1. It wasn't just tradition, nice. it was I'm number 1, right? So I was very competitive. Literally true. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very competitive, right? And that was just how I was. And uh, that's that's what drove, you know, it was what drove me. I wanted to I wanted to win. To me, it was, you know, I hated when coaches were like, look, let's just have fun out there. I'm like, well, winning is fun. So that means we need to win, right? <laughs> um, right. And so that was my mentality. And then, you know, as I t- shared with you, I get introduced to, to peace building, you know, and in my schooling and and I had a transformative, you know, experience through peace building, and I'm learning all of these academic, um, you know, principles and concepts that are helping me truly appreciate the the oil, right? The you know, I was all about the mechanics and the engine running, right? But I started to appreciate really deeply and profound ways the the oil and the co- the cooperative nature, and. Although I had this competitive drive to me still, I started to appreciate this other side. But then I started to see how all of the most significant changes in my life happened for the better. These transformative experiences were happening because of the oil, right? Because it was making the machine run the right way. 
And mm. so, you know, to this day, I, I and I the reason why I I loved you know the principles behind your book is because it gave me a a better language to talk about this this dissonance, you know, this dynamic that I still face, um, uh, it, just mentally, uh, uh, because on one hand I I'm very competitive and there's this part of me that wants to be the best and wants to to win and wants to have you know six, the highest success and blah 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 the list goes on. But then there's this other factor that is also just as motivating to me that wants, you know, cooperation and love and things to go the right. And I use that word very intentionally, love that wants things to go in that way. But to be honest, and you've said this many times, and we call it in peace building, we call it slow to fast. It, it's a slow to fast principle and it takes time and it's delicate and it's sensitive. And it's like, uh, you know, analogy I use a lot, nut grass, thin roots connected across all to one nut and very thin roots. Mm. It's delicate. You have to take your time. You have to be precious. You have to be intentional. Um, and I and I am very driven by that. And so uh, I was personally drawn to those principles that you talk about because of that. But as you were talking about this and you're talking about oil, you know, I was thinking of and this is what I guess we can leave with, and this may be how we can take in a part two later down the road, a part two episode. Sure, sure. You're talking about oil into the machine and and how important that is. We all, you know, we don't have to be a mechanic to understand the importance of oil to a machine. But, you know, I want to take it a step deeper in considering the oil filter, right? Mm. Because there's a, mm. there is a, there is definitely a, a push or a, uh, a trend to focus on the oil right now. I mean, all over, right? From, oh, yeah. From yep. DEI to mindfulness to empathy, you name it. I mean, everybody's thinking about it, talking about it, and trying it. And I'll be honest, failing quite a bit. It's not easy. And so, yeah. And and so, to me, there's the idea of the filter. I mean, what is what is the oil being filtered through that is actually going to help it be successful? Because oil filters, the intent for them is to remove all the gunk and the dirt. So that we can actually get the clean filter to the engine, right? To the mechanics. And so what is the filter for us? And and what I thought of, and this is fresh because Salam and I have been working on our content more right now. In our curriculum, we have what's called the change filter. And it's very simple and acts as a filter, right? Uh, to To help us know how we can change the right way and the most in, to be intentional about it and accountable towards it. And so yeah. just this morning, we were using an analogy of trust, right? Like everybody wants trust in a relationship in their organization. Well, how do you get it? You know, trust is an outcome, not a prerequisite. How do you get it? Um, and it doesn't, trust doesn't happen by other people saying, gosh, Seth, you know, he needs to trust me, <laughs> right? We don't get it by pointing our finger at others and saying how nobody else is trustworthy. It starts by pointing it at us and saying how we need to be more trusting or how can we invite trust to create a culture of trust? And so the first question of our filter, we call it a filter, but it's really a series of three questions is, you know, the first question is, how can I be the first to change? So when I'm thinking, mm. of, when I'm thinking of trust, I'm actually thinking about how I can change first. What about me doesn't trust? What about me doesn't invite trust? How can I be more trusting? The list goes on. And I need to answer those authentic. And then I move to the second question of the filter, which is how can I be intentional about that change? Right. So what should I do to be more trusting? Not just theoretically like, oh, I should trust more. What does that mean for me? Does that mean I need to 
you know, uh, make a go as deep as making a new, you know, uh, personal goal life statement, or do I just need to have a different conversation with Salam or with Seth or how I need to be specific? And then after that, the third and final question is how can I be accountable towards those changes that I've identified? And again, being very specific about holding myself accountable. Is it a note that I put on my monitor at work? Or is it, hey, me going to Salam saying, Salam, I really want to work on these things. Make sure that you are constantly checking in with me on it. I mean, it could be anything, right? But the idea is if we bring trust, and I'm using trust as an example, through that filter, then we get an outcome that we want. And I see the need for an oil filter um, as something crucial right now. Because again, there's a lot of focus on this oil, as you say it. But I see a need for really good filters for us um, to get the cleanest oil to to the engine um, so that it can function. So that's a a lot. I mean, that's a lot packed in there. So I apologize. But you've just, you've got me excited about some of these, these principles. So let's end maybe with, you know, some of your thoughts to that, some of your, your, you know, initial response to any of those things that I shared. And then um, we'll have to wrap up and we're definitely going to have you back again because I want to keep this conversation going. Yeah, I'd love that. This is fascinating. And I think important too, because as you said, a lot of people are struggling with this. Um, The oil conversation is very current. People are trying to figure it out as we've talked about. Um, And you're also right. There needs to be a filter because I think what's happening in that effort to you know, produce wonderful engagement and employee experience and all those things. Those are buzzwords right now that are well-intended and they're important. Uh, but sometimes we get this other phenomenon that people are starting to talk about, which is toxic positivity and inauthentic e- emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence as a training box. We checked, but nobody ever does it, you know, and, or at least my boss doesn't do, you know, it, like it falls apart. And I think that's the challenge you know, I'll just, maybe this can tee up, you know, round two or something. We'll make another movie, you know, the, the sequel. Um, but the, the way I describe the filter is that it's a people filter and this is provocative. This is challenging. And I don't even know if I'm right, but I think it's a space I want to explore, which is, um, there are things that leaders on both sides of my dichotomy, as you will, or I'd prefer it to be a yin yang. I don't want it to be a straight dichotomy, but it's a yin yang there in performance versus integral process leadership um, and competitive versus cooperative energy. Uh, But the filter for me is that I really encourage people to seek out, do the development, but also do the inner work to decide which thing you are. Are you? And sometimes that you don't know. I don't think you know until you're 30 or 40 or more that are you really deep down you know, in MBTI words, they say the shoes off, hair down self. Are you a Merlin? Happily, joyfully, with that weird hat and all the stuff that comes with it. Are you that? Or are you deep down at the joy place, at that flow state? You know, Cheeks Mint Mihai's or whatever, who, who talked about flow state. Um, where is that? Where is that 51-49% that's going to bring energy back to you? that's not going to require a post-it pad when your employees come in. Mm-hmm. Because when somebody puts a spreadsheet in front of me or talks about fourth quarter goals, I need a post-it pad. And I do well. I have an MBA. You know, I, I know what they're talking about. But I use more energy. Just like my phone, I have more apps open and my battery goes down faster than if an employee comes in and says, hey, I wanted to talk to you about something I didn't agree with earlier that you said in a meeting. 
my energy level does not drain as much as the performance leader does from that. Yeah. I'm like, Ooh, really? What happened? What did I even say? Like, it's almost an elf, like, you know, opening into that conversation. Whereas the people who are amazing, awesome people, I don't want to ever characterize performance leaders as somehow the problem. They're no more the problem than two wings of an airplane. Um, but there's a part where they're like, dude, what? That seems disloyal. Like what? I can't unhear that. You know, and their brain is experiencing, even if they don't say it, their brain's experiencing dissonance around that. So I think there's an opportunity to further dive into, you know, what, like I said, what's beyond development mm -hmm. because without like the work you guys are doing with leaders, nobody can even talk like this. Like this is like a love, this is out there stuff. You can't be a leader who doesn't understand trust and collaborative problem, like all these things that are part of what is the seeds and the soil and even watching out for the weeds. You can't even get into that deeper level of development unless you have these working leadership competencies that allow you to not even just blow up your first team you get in life or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I don't know how we would define that, that conversation, that space, but it, I, I think again, you're right. It needs to happen before toxic positivity and, and mishandling, spilling the oil, <laughs> lighting it on fire, flooding the engine, all those things that we might be able to tie into the oil analogy. Um, you can't have a, you can't win a race with a big pile of oil on the ground, yeah. you know? Um, well, and, and, you and can't, oil, uh, the oil is sometimes becoming the checklist. Well, we, well, we got to yeah. put the oil in there. Doesn't mean 100%. it's, yeah, it's just part of the checklist, That's it. right? Um, Gosh, I mean, I wish we could keep talking. I lo love the love the conversation. I know that plenty more that you could add to, and and Salam as well. But um, we'll 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 wrap it up uh, now. Just uh, gosh, can't can't thank you enough for for joining the show. This has been incredibly uh, exhilarating, exciting for me to just you know think about these concepts and have this conversation with you. Um, so I appreciate it. Appreciate your time um, and. You know, we're gonna have to have have you again on the show. Somehow, have you participate in in our leadership institute in some capacity? I know we talked about that before, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just uh, want you to know how how grateful I am that that you joined the show. So appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. Uh, thanks, Chris, and Salam too. Um, yeah, I I ten times that for me. It's been an awesome experience um, today. And again, whatever's in the future, I think, like I say so often, this stuff matters. This is people's daily experience of work and life and relationships. And man, that's the stuff that counts. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Yeah. So any salam? Any last last words? No. I wish we can continue the conversation and um, delve deeper into the book. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch these movies so I can remember who these <laughs> characters are. Right. You really watch put, the them movies in, first. put them into context, but I love the way you refer to them. And when I start thinking about organizations and leaders and individuals within these organizations and sort of the, the ecosystem that exists, I love this analogy because yeah, it kind of brings things to light and it makes, it makes sense of things. So I, yeah. I really appreciate that. I'm going to spend more time with your book and uh, I may really just, I've been looking for an excuse to go back and watch these movies all over again. I just might yes. right now. So. <laughs> yeah. These have been known as pandemic viewing. So there you, you got to go. jump into them, grab some popcorn and yes. get back into those. So yeah. that's where the pandemic is over, right? Right. You won't have time coming <laughs> soon. It'll be all done. Yeah. That's our next. But thank you for spending time with us and sharing your insights and, and, um, uh, your willingness to share some specific experiences and examples of, of how 
this notion of a leadership ally works. And, and uh, I was really thrilled to hear you say that it is lonely at the top, because that's one thing that we've actually incorporated into our leadership framework, which is mentoring. And we use yeah. the same with the same phrase, it is lonely at the top and leaders may come across as they know everything. They may be perceived or expected to know everything, but they're people just like you and I, and um, something their world and their job is very lonely because they don't have anyone to talk to. So, so thank you. And thank you for what you do. Likewise. Thank you for that. And thank you for such good questions. Like, yeah, you guys could keep me on here a long time. I, I was just like, oh, this is amazing where this is going. So I think, <laughs> thank you for facilitating that guys. Yeah. Well, this has been, this has been a joy uh, and appreciate you again. And, and listeners, thanks for, for tuning in. You know, I'll leave you with the, with a great question, you know, um, inspired by, by Seth and his book, which is, are you a, you know, are you a Merlin? Or are you an Arthur? Um, be thinking about that. I think it's an important uh, question to answer, especially if we're we're in a leadership role. Um, but uh, thank, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you go out and and you know look at that look at his book uh, Merlin Advantage and, and order it and dive into it. Um, uh, I know it's again like I said it's on my list and I and I look forward to it. So uh, thanks for tuning in and that's our that's our show today. Until next time, take care and be safe.